0: Hello readers, my name is Jason Jeffries and I'm your host for Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Charles Fishman, author of The Walmart Effect, The Big Thirst, and most recently, One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon, published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. Charles, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me and I'm delighted to be back in Raleigh, North Carolina.
0: Excellent, it is an honor to have you here. Uh, Charles, you started reporting on the space program as a Washington Post reporter covering the Challenger disaster, which was, of course, a terrible moment in US history, if not the history of the world. What was it like to cover this disaster and how did that expand eventually into the research that became
1: this book, One Giant Leap? Well, reporting about Challenger was hard, for a lot of reasons not the least of which is that I was very young I was 25 years old and I was not an engineering student (laughs) I didn't I didn't um, have any degrees in aeronautical engineering I didn't even have any courses in aeronautical engineering and um, My job as a Washington Post reporter was to try and find out what had gone wrong with that vast and very complicated rocket ship, and then explain what had gone wrong to ordinary readers. And so um, I had a lot of really interesting experiences talking to NASA engineers, NASA scientists, senior NASA officials that were almost a little embarrassing. Interviews in which they spent the first 20 minutes explaining to me some basic concept of space flight and rocketry that I didn't have any background in so that I could then ask them the questions in which I would try and uh, catch them not explaining the truth adequately. So um, it was, it was a, a, a remarkable experience, certainly a challenging experience. Um, as it turns out, um, the problems with Challenger were technical, but the technical problems were really easy to understand. The rockets that launched the space shuttle didn't do well in cold weather. They didn't want to be launched below freezing. There are reasons for that, but that's easy to understand. And NASA knew that. The officials in charge of the rockets knew that. And they launched them anyway, despite the low temperatures. And so. The real problem with Challenger was um, a human problem, a question of priorities, safety, the culture of NASA, the culture of spaceflight in the United States. And that was something I was perfectly reasonably well-equipped to try and um, uh, suss out and tease out and explain. And, and frankly, um, I learned an incredible amount uh, while I was, while I was, uh, covering Challenger. I was on the road covering that for seven months. We had a, we had a team of five reporters who did nothing for seven months, but write about the Challenger accident. But there was a really interesting key moment in, in, in my work in Challenger, which sort of opened the door to the book that we're talking about today. Um, I worked in a bunch of different places while I was writing about Challenger, but one of the places I was based for six weeks was Mission Control, was Houston, and um, I, sa- I they gave the reporters who were sort of there semi-permanently, they're actually quite gracious in their own way. They gave us desks, they gave us workspace, they um, installed phone lines. We, we paid for all that stuff, but but there was space inside the headquarters building for us to work, and I sat next to a guy from the Chicago Tribune named Howard Witt, and We were adjacent to the visitor center. It was the visitor center in those days. And the visitor center closed at six o'clock every night. They turned off the lights. We were right next door doing our work. And we were newspaper reporters in 1986. We did not finish it at six o'clock at night. We filed stories and then we sat at those telephones that had been installed, waiting for our bosses to call us back and say, I don't understand this. You're clear to go, whatever. So we were often there till eight or nine o'clock at night, just doing a little bit of work, talking to each other, waiting for the phone to ring. There was a lunar module right next to us. It was part of the visitor center. It was a real lunar module. It uh, had been used for testing and training during Apollo. It It was not a lunar module, obviously, that ever flew in space, but it was sitting right there, perfectly restored. And it was behind this little plastic chain-link fence that was about knee-high for us. And I vividly remember that the plastic chain-link fence was yellow. And that place was filled with, you know, fourth graders from from 8.30 in the morning to 6 o'clock at night. <clears throat> and we so desperately wanted to step over the little chain-link fence and climb up the ladder of the lunar module and look inside. And so, you know, three nights a week, we had this debate. Do we climb up the ladder and look inside without permission? Are there sensors? Are there lasers? Are there pressure? If you owned a lunar module, how would you protect it? And, and so the debate was sort of a classic you know, college dorm room bull session. You could ask permission to go inside, but if they said no, you were never going inside. Or you could just look around at 8.30 at night when there was no one around and climb up. And then if you got busted, well, you could say, well, I didn't know there was anything wrong. The problem was we had a job to do. And they were prickly. And if they yanked our press credentials, that was going to be a bad conversation with the national desk of the Washington Post. So we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And one day in the middle of the afternoon, I forget the guy's name, who was, who was assigned to take care of us, the media guy. I said, you know, we'd love to go up in the lunar module. Is there any way that you could arrange that? And the guy said, sure. How about now? <laughs> I said, now, now it'd be great, except there are 300 fourth graders here. He said, I decide who goes in the lunar module. And then we just stepped over the, we, we, we lived the fantasy. We stepped over the yellow chain link fence. We climbed the ladder that you can see, you know, on the leg of the lunar module. And the lunar module cabin is remarkably tiny. It's, it's the size of, of one office cubicle. You can barely move around inside it. And, um, and so there wasn't room for both Howard Witt and I. We went up one at a time. And, uh, and I vividly remember stepping into the cabin of a real spaceship and um, the inside of the lunar module. So the lunar module was designed and built 1965, 1966, 1967. By 1967, they weren't changing things. They were just making sure it was going to do what it was supposed to do. It had very much the air of a World War II fighter plane. There just literally banks and banks of switches and circuit breakers. And so if you've ever seen a movie with a B-29, the cockpit of the lunar module doesn't look that different. And so there were a couple things that were striking about it. And and the control panels had classic aviation instruments as well, gauges. Um, I had two reactions. One was, this is really cool, but it does not look anything like Star Wars, which had (laughs) come out, whatever, 10 years earlier. And um, if you put me in this in space, I wouldn't have any idea which which switch to throw. This is actually a lot more complicated than you imagine. And so, I mean, that was it. It was for me. It was just sort of a wow. This is this is as cool as you think it is. But as with many of my shuttle experiences, there we joke about it's rocket science all the time. But in fact flying in space is very hard and that was sort of a window into how hard it was and to be honest, that's what my book is about One Giant Leap is about how hard it was to go to the moon and, and what we managed to accomplish in an incredibly short period of time of 8 years
0: Thank you so much Charles, that was a great answer so it was not like the Millennium Falcon is what you're saying it was, you like to... <laughs> it was not like the Millennium
1: Falcon We all feel like we could sit down in the, in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and Falcon and be fine
0: Excellent, thank you so much, Charles. Um, To prepare for this book, you flew in
1: zero gravity. Can you tell us what that was like? You know, I would I would rank flying in zero gravity in this in the sort of top ten fun experiences of my at this point all too long life. Um, I I really felt like, you know, I wasn't going to get to fly in the moon, fly to the moon. I wasn't going to get to flying the space shuttle, um, and the closest I could come to getting just a little taste of the experience of space flight was to go in the airplane that um, goes by the nickname, the Vomit Comet. You can, you can fly a jet airplane straight up, almost straight up into the sky at a 45 degree angle, which is very steep in an airplane. And then as you come over the top of a curve and start to go down at a 45 degree angle, there's a period of about 35 seconds where everything in the plane floats, including the people. Uh, And it's not, it feels like zero gravity. The physicists will tell you it's not zero gravity. You're still in the gravity of the earth, but putting all that aside, it is the same as zero gravity. And, and so um, I did Two separate flights, both in Florida—one in Fort Lauderdale and one in Orlando—and uh, I probably did um, between forty and fifty of those loops, thirty-five seconds at a time. So I've been in—so I've been—I've been in zero gravity for twenty minutes of my life, thirty-five seconds at a time. And I'll tell you what: there were two things that were totally striking about it. One is how utterly relaxing it is. It's—it's it's like the best. You know, perfect temperature swimming pool or bath you've ever been in, with absolutely no worries and nothing on your mind. It's just you're you're literally just released from everything, and and I I, I found it to be remarkably relaxing. The other thing is, you know, I, I guess I did that when I was 55 or 56. And, um, so I'd spent a lot of time in gravity <laughs> every second of my life, uh, uh, for 56 years. And, and to me, it felt completely natural. Like I took my reporter's notebook and my pen and my baseball cap up with me. And I would park my reporter's notebook and my pen off to one side and go do something. you know, they had all these, get you know, see if you can catch the water droplet with your mouth, see if you can catch the floating jelly beans. And then I would just go back and find my pen in my notebook where they where I had left them, you know, 8 seconds earlier, and it just felt like the most natural thing in the world. And so it was it was wonderful and it was it was really hypnotic. I know why astronauts find it so appealing. It's it's a really zero gravity is really bad for the human body. And I wasn't trying to go to the bathroom. I wasn't trying to run a science experiment or, or exercise. You know, I was, I was having fun for 35 seconds. So there's lots of things about zero gravity, I think, that are really challenging. But just that little taste of it was, was such great fun. Excellent.
0: Thank you so much, Charles. Um, you begin this book, One Giant Leap, not talking about a sight, but about a scent. And that scent is the scent of moon dust, can you describe the scent of moon dust for us and tell us why you chose to
1: begin your book this way? So for me, the fun of researching and reporting this book was that there are literally a 1,000, maybe 10,000 stories. You can't call them untold stories because someone's told them to someone, but, but there really are lost stories about going to the moon. And one of them is this moment that all the astronauts had when they had been out on the moon, and they had come back into the lunar module cabin, and um, and so the the one I describe as the book opens is that very first moment after that very first spacewalk. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are back in the uh, in the spaceship, and and these are basic spaceships. There's no airlock. You 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 depressurize the whole. Thing. You put on your spacesuit then you open the hatch and depressurize the whole thing. When you come back in, you keep your spacesuit on, and then you close the hatch, you, you fill the, the spaceship back up with air, then you snap your uh, helmet off. And they took their helmets off, and the whole cabin was filled with this very vivid odor. It was, um, Neil Armstrong described it as the odor of fireplace ashes. And Buzz Aldrin uh, described it as the smell of the air after a fireworks show. So it was kind of the smell of burned gunpowder or, or burned wood. We all know what that smells like. And they were astonished at that smell. And that was clearly the smell of of uh, moon dirt, of moon dust. And the subsequent five pairs of astronauts who landed on the moon, went out, tromped around, came back in, all... Um, all experienced the same thing, very vivid smell. Um, and, and of course, no one expected that. It, for me, there are a lot of things I loved about that story. I just like the sentence, the moon has a smell, because who would imagine? It's the last thing you think. But it's the kind of sentence, if you start your book that way, you know people are going to read the next three paragraphs at least <laughs> until I find out what the smell is. And um, But it's a reminder how how many surprises there are in that, in the journey, which was an incredible undertaking. It's also a reminder why we go do things like that, right? In the modern world, you can read about Rome. You can listen to Roman music. You can watch YouTube videos of Rome. You can watch YouTube videos of Rome taken on cameras people have mounted on their heads while they narrate their tour of Rome. You can eat Italian food. You can eat really good Italian food. You can make your own Italian food at some point you're going to want to go to Rome. And when you go to Rome, all of that previous experience will seem very pale by comparison. And so we, we go places because showing up always provides a, a insight and an experience that you can't have any other way. No robot could tell you what the moon smelled like. So there's another moment just a little further on in that story, which is equally striking. Moon moon dust turns out to be, in its own way, very sharp edged and and uncomfortable. It's sticky, it's clingy, it's a pain in the neck. It, um, It actually, that first moonwalk lasted two hours and there was only one. The last three of the six moon landings, the astronauts were on the moon for three days and they did... They each did three seven-hour moonwalks, a lot of time out there. And the seals between the gloves and the arms of their spacesuits started to be compromised by the moon, dar- moon dirt. It was strong enough to cut the seals in such a way that the spacesuits actually started to leak. And Armstrong and Aldrin, that very first day, found the moon dust so irritating. They, they, they came back in, you know, Put everything back in order, and and then went to sleep for the night. They slept in their spacesuit helmets and their uh, glo- their spacesuit gloves because they found the moon dust so irritating. And that's that's a you just think about it. Flew to the moon, went out, walked around, came back into the spaceship, and found the moon dirt so irritating that they put their helmets back on and slept in their helmets. That's like something from a you know a bad movie. So, just 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 a lot of wonderful surprises that sort of bring the story to life in a way that that just looking at those pictures of the guys bouncing around on the moon do not.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Charles. And listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Charles Fishman. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro Mm -hmm. FM Audiobooks. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm and enter BOOKIN, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon, published by Simon & Schuster. Charles, JFK, in a speech before Congress in 1961, committed the United States to put a man on the moon by 1970. Uh, Can you tell us about the circumstances surrounding this commitment?
1: (laughs) Well, the really interesting thing was that JFK wasn't that interested in space, but by the third or fourth month of his presidency, it was clear that the Russians were just... um, crushing us in the sort of, quote-unquote, space competition. The Russians, of course, launched the first spaceship of any kind, Sputnik. They launched the first living creatures into space, first the dog Laika, then the dogs together, Strelka and Belka. They launched the first um, spaceship that reached the moon. They photographed the dark side of the moon before we even went to the moon and then digitized and sent those photographs back in the late 1950s. Uh, Truly a remarkable technological performance. And, of course, they launched the first astronaut, Yuri Gagarin, the first female astronaut, um, the first moonwalk. They did almost everything first in the first five or six years of the the space age. And and Kennedy was very tired of coming in second. As he said to his advisors, this is one of those arenas in which coming in second and losing are the same. (laughs) There's no point in coming in second. But also, early in his presidency, Kennedy had a couple of serious embarrassments. One was the Russians launching Yuri Gagarin, the first human being into space, ahead of the United States. That just made it look like the Russians were a technological power equal to, or perhaps even better than, the United States, when they very clearly were not. But that was a growing image in the developing world. The Russians are as good as the Americans at this technology stuff. And space was doing that for them. And then uh, literally five days after Yuri Gagarin was launched into space, which was a triumph for the Russians and an embarrassment for the Americans, um, the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba happened. And this was a CIA-backed invasion of the island designed to overthrow uh, Castro. Uh, Within two days, Castro leading the Cuban military himself out there fighting had surrounded the CIA backed invaders and taken them all prisoner. The whole thing turned into it was both a joke and a debacle. And again, an absolute mortification for the United States on the world stage. Like we had we had stage managed over several years this this elaborate scheme to invade Cuba and overthrow Castro and it took him 48 hours to <laughs> to do away with that. And so he was looking for something striking. He was looking for a way of as he put it leapfrogging the Russians, a way of saying we we are as good as our reputation and we're going to prove it. And in space the way of doing that was to say you're going to go to the moon. There was no other there was no other sort of goal that had that kind of reach and crispness and 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 boldness and and I think it really appealed to Kennedy especially at the moment in time when he ended up giving that speech so going to the moon for John F Kennedy was pure and simple a cold war effort it was it was a way of reestablishing american technological engineering and scientific prowess in the world
0: Thank you so much, Charles. And this was appealing to Kennedy, but despite the sheen of history and hindsight, a majority of Americans were unsupportive of the space program and
1: everything it was doing. Why is that? <laughs> well, it, this is one of those funny things, and I, I think we have a hard time interpreting it, maybe because we don't want to interpret it the way, the way it appears. But in the public opinion polls taken throughout the 60s, that was a time when public opinion polling was, was, was just getting started and there, was, there were polls taken every week, but they weren't like today's polls. They didn't ask three times a year, 10 years in a row, how do you feel about the space program? Um, the, the questions weren't nearly as careful and sophisticated as they are now. Um, but in all the polling about going to the moon, Americans never say, Yes, this is something I want to spend money on. The questions are always worded in connection with what it's costing. And when you say to Americans, uh, we're going to serve you dinner, it's going to cost a billion dollars, Americans say, don't serve me dinner. We're going to serve you dinner, it's going to cost $100 million. Yeah, I still don't want you to serve me dinner. So when you attach a price tag to things, that always makes people feel like, I'm not sure I'm getting my money's worth. But it is striking there was a, Apollo 8 was this triumphant uh, uh, moment um, sort of most of the way through the decade. It was, it was the, the second Apollo flight, but the first big Apollo flight. Apollo 8 happened in Christmas 1968, and the lunar modules weren't ready for, for space. They were running behind, and so as a kind of test, Um, NASA flew just the command module and the service module, just the main spaceship, all the way to the moon and back. And and the astronauts, the three astronauts, entered lunar orbit. They orbited the moon ten times. And it was a a real test of could the big test was the spaceship itself and, and the really big test was could the computers that had been designed for Apollo do the kind of precision navigation that was necessary to get to the moon and back you're traveling at some points seven miles a second so you you can't be off by much and get where you want to go and everything worked perfectly this was the mission during which the astronauts read from the bible they read um, uh, uh, passages from genesis on christmas eve on a worldwide tv broadcast it was just a soaringly triumphant moment not just for the Americans, not just for Americans or the American space program, but but really for humanity. And it came at the very end of a terrible year. 1968 was the year Martin Luther King was assassinated. It was the year um, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. It was the year that, that there were terrible riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. It was a devastating year. 1968 was the worst year for fatalities in Vietnam in the entire course of the war. 50 American military personnel killed every single day, seven days a week for 52 weeks. It was a bad year. And this spaceflight, people really, even at the time, talked about it as sort of the, the redeeming moment of the entire terrible year. And yet, when Americans were polled literally eight weeks after the f- conclusion of that space flight, they said, yeah, I don't really think, whatever. Only, only 38% said going to the moon's a good idea. Well, we we were doing it. We were going to the moon. We were, you know, when that poll was taken, we were, whatever, f- four months from actually landing on the moon. So it it it's interesting. There was a lot going on in the 1960s. You had the women's movement. You had civil rights. You had a, a, a really elaborate effort to reduce poverty. You had school integration. Um, you had, you know a terrible divisive war. The war was bad, it went poorly, and then it was really managed poorly politically and divided the the United States itself. And so I think in the context of all that, people were like, okay, going to the moon is kind of cool, but we kind of got a lot of stuff going on at home. And so I think when they were asked directly, I don't think people felt comfortable saying, given all the things that need attention, what we really need to be doing is going to the moon. All of that said, one, one thing Apollo has a reputation for being really expensive, like, wow, that was crazy, man. We spent all that money. What do we get for it? It actually was not that expensive. During the Vietnam War, there were two years of the war, each of which individually, fighting in Vietnam that one year cost more than the entire space race. Uh, Going to the moon cost $19.5 billion in the money we spent while we were doing it over that, whatever it was, 10 years. During that time, Americans spent twice that amount of money just on cigarettes. (laughs) So you can argue about whether it was a good idea or not. You can argue about whether the money could or could not have been spent on other things, but it wasn't expensive in the context of things we were already paying for. It wasn't even as expensive as our smoking habit. In, in the 1960s. So when, when Armstrong and Aldrin walked on the moon, 94% of U.S. households were tuned in. <laughs> so when asked by the pollsters, whether they thought it was a good idea, a good government program, clearly a majority felt like they had to say no, or they wanted to say no. But when it was actually happening, we, we were watching, we, we were, we, we were taking pride at that moment. Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much, Charles. And I know time is running short, so um, I'm going to cut a few questions. I'm sad I didn't even get to ask you about Tang and Velcro. But um, this is really a fantastic book about a fascinating topic. And listeners, I really hope that you'll come pick it up. We will have signed copies available in store and online at www.quellridgebooks.com. I have been speaking with Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon, published by Simon & Schuster. Charles, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank... Charles Fishman for joining me. Signed copies of One Giant Leap can be purchased in store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. If you're a writer who wants to explore your craft, receive feedback on your work, and make new writing friends without the pressure and expectations of a university writing program, then check out the Redbud Writing Project. This new school offers in-person classes and workshops in short story writing, novel writing, Memoir, submitting, publishing, and more at community locations in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Visit redbudwriting.org to learn more and sign up. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.